Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of GraphQL Radio. We are having chats with people that are using GraphQL in production and also the people that are defining its future. My name is Max Stoiber. I am one of the co-founders of GraphCDN, which is the GraphQL CDN. And I'm here with my co-host, Abby. Abby, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, it's been a long time, everyone. Uh, three years to be exact. <laughs> uh, I'm really glad uh, we're re- re- resurrecting the podcast. Uh, since we last talked, I've joined Gatsby to, you know, make the web blazing fast. And it's been great. And we use, you know, obviously GraphQL a lot there. So it felt like it was relevant to be back on the podcast with Max here. Today, we have Benji, an expert software consultant specializing in architecture and best practices for your company. Benji is the author of a suite of tools known as Graphile. We're going to be talking about a lot of them, but most specifically PostgreSQL, uh, which this will help you build powerful GraphQL APIs on top of Postgres. Benji, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you as our first guest. Thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank awesome. you for being our guinea pig. <laughs> yeah, definitely the guinea pig of season two. Um, I wanted to start the talk here just to get everyone to know you. You know, I think we've all been in the GraphQL community for a long time now, but you know, I'm sure there's more to how we got here than just GraphQL. So I was wondering if you could like kind of just go give the audience some of your background, where you're from, and how you got to where you are today. Maybe the most relevant way. I would say. Um, so as you may be able to tell from my accent, I'm from the UK, uh, from the South Coast, born and bred. And since being in uni, I guess, I've been doing sort of independent development work. You know, I've, I've run my own agencies. I've done startups. I went through Y Combinator at one point with a, a mobile app, FitFu. That was uh, 2011, I think. And, you know, I've done this kind of like lots and lots of iterations. So I've, I've always, always had a passion for software development um, since being a little kid. Like me and my brother, we had uh, a few little games consoles and stuff like that. And he would play on the games consoles and I would sit next to him reading the source code of like, how did this game work? Like <laughs> I've always <laughs> been interested. And so like the web really grabbed my attention. So a lot of what I've done over the last you know decade has been web-based, API-based in particular. I love databases. I love, I love data, moving data around. And much like how when React came out, it was like a, a light bulb moment of like, oh, this is such a better way of, of dealing with this problem than we were dealing with previously with things like Backbone, which don't get me wrong, I loved Backbone, but like React just, it was this whole new shift in a way of doing it. And it really felt like it solved a lot of things. Having spent lots of time building and consuming RESTful APIs and other, you know, SOAP and RPC and various other API forms, this uh, this GraphQL just looked fantastic from the first time that I saw it. So I guess it was around maybe the end of 2016 that I started actually getting involved. Like I started like, I'll start playing with GraphQL. And there was this, I love Postgres. There's this project out there called PostGraphQL, um, which builds a GraphQL API for you based on Postgres. Seems like a trivially easy way to get started. So I ran the command and sure enough, there I was, GraphQL API. And I was like, this is amazing. This is great. And I started using it for one of my startup projects, which turned into a different startup project, as as you do when you're building startups, you pivot <laughs> rapidly. 
And at, at some point, like I had a performance issue and I started getting more involved in the development of PostgreSQL itself. And then at one point, I found myself in an email thread with um, Caleb uh, Meredith, the, the maintainer at the time of PostgreSQL, and someone who'd sent him a message saying, uh, you know, hey, can you help with this problem or whatever? And Caleb was like, well, Benji's the maintainer now, so talk to Benji. And I was like, oh, am I? Okay, yeah, <laughs> uh, I I can deal with this. Yes, that sounds fine. Let's do this. And what also really helped around that time is I've been trying to build these startups and trying to like figure out what was next for me after a previous one. And um, people started donating. Like they started just sending me money. Like here's 50 quid, like good work, you know, go get yourself, you know, a nice meal. And I was like, this is, you know, this is starting to show more promise than these actual like businesses that I'm setting out. And I've always loved open source. Like, how can I make this be the thing? So I went from there to fixing the performance issues in PostgreSQL by like basically re-architecting the core of it. In the process, trying to figure out how to build a, a company around open source, which honestly, I'm still trying to figure out now. Uh, but we've had Graphile Limited now for, I think, about four years. And, you know, it's going well. We now have quite a significant amount of sponsorship, like enough to pay for a day and a half every week of open source, just pure, which is wow. really good. Nice. Um, I actually do more open source than that, as you would expect. <laughs> um, but like that amount is actually paid for, uh, <laughs> which is good. And yeah, so basically just kept working and building stuff and uh, improving, getting more and more and more involved. Before we dive into the post-graph file parts and, and all of that, I'm curious, did you study computer science at uni or did you find your path there through different means? No, um, I actually, at A-level, I think, uh, which would be college for anyone not in the UK, I did one small course on computing and I was like, this is so incredibly boring. Like I already know <laughs> and have known this stuff for the last like seven or eight years. Like it's it's just so fundamental. And I just, it just didn't enthuse me. Like programming had always been uh, a hobby for me. Um, whilst at uni studying maths and physics, I actually then set up a development agency and started doing like WordPress stuff and, and various other things like that. But that was just, you know, from from a passion for technology that happened to line up with a few other events and people and turn into a career. It wasn't really planned. <laughs> I thought I was going to be a maths professor. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I studied mathematics in college too, so you'd really never know where your life ends up, you know? Indeed. Um, yeah, <laughs> it starts amazing. with some CSS one day and you end up uh, working at a, a tech company, you know? So it's crazy how everything can evolve. I want to get really nostalgic here for a second. Because we've, you know, like you said, you started in 2016. GraphQL has changed a lot. But I was wondering if you could kind of share with the audience, like, what the scene was like when you first got into the GraphQL community. And kind of how have you seen everything grow to where it is today? Oh, great question. So one of the challenging things about this question is my memory of time is absolutely appalling. So I will do my best. Yeah, I remember just there was obviously a lot of hype. There was a lot of doubt and there was a lot of passion there was a lot of people who were super excited for this technology and a lot of people saying this is ridiculous we can we can do this with rest already who um you know in my opinion completely missed the point like there's a lot that, that graphql brings i mean one of its biggest things is the the graphql spec itself the fact that you can concretely say this is a graphql api versus this is not a graphql api and that shared tooling 
But like, yeah, just like the, the passion, the rate of innovation. Obviously, Lee Byron watched a lot of his talks at the time and still do. And I think one of the things that he was talking about at the time was like, uh, you know, here's my plan. I'm sure you've seen it because he's, he's referenced it in many of his future talks, but it's a, uh, he's got his notebook and he's got like a bunch of dates on here. Like, oh, by here, I think there'll be this many companies interested and it'll be this type of company. And we've just seemed to have jumped to the end, basically, very, very rapidly. <laughs> we've got like, it's exploded in growth, which just shows this isn't a technology that only solves Facebook's problem, or I should say, you know, the company formerly known as Facebook, but actually solves the problem of many companies and, you know, projects and charities, organizations like across the world. And I think that is, you know, fantastic. But how has it changed was one of your questions. We're seeing more tooling for it. We're also, you know, we're starting to finally see Defer and Stream, for example, have been were talked about even back then um, by Lee himself, I think. And we are now getting to the point where Defer and Stream are looking like finalizing that those spec edits is coming. You know, there are still issues, but they are being solved. And the momentum behind it is really, really growing. And that is fantastic to see. And I think that's true of broad amounts of the stuff that came up in like, you know, 2015, 2016, that's been really great. One of the other things that is fantastic is it's gone from being a Facebook project to being a, you know, managed by the GraphQL Foundation, right? Which is basically not ran by one company anymore, which has been incredibly valuable, I think, to the ecosystem. One of the problems that you get with open source that is run by a company is that everything is generally goes through the filter of that one company, what they need. So it can mean that, you know, certain features won't get implemented because they just don't line up with the need. One of the great things about having it more open like this is the needs of the ecosystem as a whole of the entire community can be filtered and everyone can weigh in on these decisions. And so I think we founded the GraphQL Working Group in 2017, GraphQL Foundation around the same time. And it's I think, been really, really significant to the way in which GraphQL has evolved. It's gone from raising pull requests against one of Facebook's repositories and hoping that someone's going to pay attention to it, to actually being able to attend a monthly working group, represent your idea, try and get it through the stages that it needs to go to get merged into the spec, getting it merged into the spec, and as of October this year, getting it released as part of the latest spec cut, which, I mean, for a lot of people has been really, really great. And for the ecosystem as a whole. I think one of the things that you said very much at the beginning was, is really core to GraphQL that I think people don't really appreciate. And it's the fact that it's a spec. And that sounds really stupid because of course it's a spec, right? But it, that is such a powerful thing because all of this tooling, all of this ecosystem around GraphQL wouldn't exist if it wasn't a spec, wouldn't exist if it wasn't clearly defined what is a GraphQL API, right? That allows people to build clients, that allows people like us to build products, that allows people to build all of this tooling without having to really care what kind of a GraphQL API it is, right? Like whether it is created with PostGraphi, with WP GraphQL, whether you wrote your own GraphQL API, it doesn't matter. The tooling just works with any GraphQL. API. And I think that that's really powerful. And it sounds like, from what you mentioned, having a consistent process to influence that spec is also a big improvement over where GraphQL was maybe in 2016, five years ago now, uh, where now actually the entire community can be heard. And there's a clearly defined process for going from, I have an idea, to 
it actually getting merged into the spec and becoming ratified as part of a version of that spec. Absolutely agree. It seemed like there was a lot of bureaucracy back in the day with like how you could propose changes and when they were actually planning to be implemented. So if you were like a new, like uh, if you do some greenfield project or you're taking a chance on GraphQL, certain features were like not going to be guaranteed to be there, right? And so, you know, I just remember seeing a lot of hate back in the day or I guess it's FUD, right? More on like, oh, REST is better. You can't do X, Y, Z with GraphQL. They're not doing this. And the GraphQL Foundation, as well as the working group, kind of first laid the path to solidify like, this is going to be its own entity. It's like a living, breathing organism now with its own direction. And I feel like once that happened, the proliferation started. Like so many people were willing to take a chance, kind of based on the neighbor syndrome or like my neighbor's doing it. So now I'm going to do it. And then it kind of just went from there. So like it just takes like, you know, one company or one entity to kind of change people's minds. And I think that's what happened. Like Airbnb jumped on board. Similar startups at the time that were trying to iterate fast in 2015, 16. Like they took a chance on it because it was greenfield for them. Um, It's just interesting. Oh, Yelp. I remember Yelp published. Public API came out around that time and everyone lost their crap because like they'd never seen like someone outside of Facebook build a public API and then GitHub obvious was there too. So it's really cool to see the just the evolution over so many years. Now back to the foundation and the working group, what's your role in those communities now? So I started um, being involved in the working group maybe 2017, 2018, I can't remember specifically, but I've been attending pretty much every meeting. I've been taking notes at those working groups uh, for a long time. And as part of that, I started getting more involved in trying to help them run more smoothly, making sure that we were keeping track of like the action items, being more involved in actually reviewing people's pull requests and things like that as well. So I think that is part of the reason why when we set up the technical steering committee, which uh, Lee Byron set up, he chose the initial members. There's 10, there's Lee and 10 other members of the technical steering committee. He chose the first 10 and I was among them. So I've been very proud to serve for the last year on the technical steering committee. Now, the technical steering committee is, is a life, it's a lovely like honor, but broadly Everything that we do at the TSC is to try and get consensus at the working groups. So really, the TSC is there for for legal reasons. It's there to take a vote on anything that needs a legal vote taken. So, for example, getting this uh, October 2021 release of GraphQL out needed an official formal vote to say, yes, this is ready to go. And that had to be done by the TSC. But broadly, we try and make sure that we are in unison with the whole of the working group. So it shouldn't generally matter if you're on the TSC or just an attendee at the working group. You should have a similar amount of power, a similar amount of decision-making capabilities. We're also obviously responsible for you know, managing the the GitHub repositories and other such, you know, chore things that you need a more formal right for. But that doesn't mean that you can't like, you know, manage pull requests and raise pull requests. You don't, you can be on the working group to do that. You don't need to be TSC member. I actually didn't know that. So the TSC is more like a, a legal requirement to sign off things that need legal votes. But really the working groups are the things that does that do the actual work. Absolutely. In fact, we make it a point that the GraphQL TSC monthly meetup is the GraphQL working group monthly meetup. Um, ah. Technically, we're meant to have like a small bit at the beginning, but there's very, very rarely 
any actual TSC business. So generally we just skip over it. But like there was, you know, mentions of it when it came to, for example, recently the TSC duration that you serve is a calendar year. So that's coming to the end for some folks, including myself. And then we've opened nominations for people to nominate themselves. Uh, Obviously we're recording now in December. So those nominations have been collected. The remaining TSC that are not at the end of their term We'll be taking a vote on that. And then in January, we should find out who the next five TSC members will be, which may well be us again that were previous there. Maybe new people. Who knows? It'd be uh, interesting to find out. That's super exciting. And and you mentioned working groups. Is there multiple working groups? Is there one working group? Great question. So there is the GraphQL specification working group, which works on the spec. Uh, that is the main working group because as I, you know, as we both discussed, the spec is really the core of GraphQL. We also like have the reference implementation and we've got like Express GraphQL and a bunch of other like projects, Graphical, but these are all like useful projects. Like GraphQL.js is the reference implementation, but GraphQL is implemented in, I think, over 30 different programming languages now. But the spec is shared. Like there's not different versions of the spec. Yeah. There is one spec. So the spec working group is like the core. The spec working group can spin out sub working groups for particular spec-related purposes. So we had one for mm. input unions at one point, and we have some for other other purposes. But there are also working groups for the various projects. So there's a GraphQL over HTTP working group, for example, to help us formalize what we've all been doing for the last six years anyway, but try and actually have a concrete spec that says, here is exactly how you should do GraphQL over HTTP. I think that's one of the things that um, people don't really realize about GraphQL is it, it doesn't actually in itself relate to HTTP at all. It is effectively, GraphQL is a function call, really. You give it a document and some variables and you expect back a response, but it doesn't matter whether that's done over HTTP or WebSockets or, you know, over the phone, over fax, who who cares? <laughs> like, it doesn't really matter to GraphQL itself, but it obviously matters to the ecosystem. But there's also ones for like Graphical, the, uh, the IDE that we have, and GraphQL JS itself, um, so yeah, lots of working groups with lots of different people involved, all helping to contribute to making GraphQL better. That's fantastic to know. I have one more follow-up question, which is, let's say that I am listening to this and I am like, I have a really good idea on how to make GraphQL better. Where would I go? What would that process look like, right? If I'm like, I have an idea on how to make this better, what would the steps be for me to actually get that? Assuming it's really a good idea and everyone else agrees, which I would assume is the the most difficult part here. How would I actually get it into GraphQL and then the spec, but also the reference implementation and anywhere else it needs to be? Let's assume that this is a fundamental change to GraphQL that involves a change to the GraphQL spec. Because if you want to make a change to, for example, Graphical, the GraphQL uh, IDE, then you would just get involved with that repository like you would with any other open source repository. So assuming that this is a change that needs a change to the GraphQL spec, there's been a lot of them, you would start by writing down what is it that you are trying, like we try and focus on what's the problem that's being solved rather than what's the solution. So don't start with the solution, start with the problem. There's a, there's a number of ways you can do it. If you've already got like a solution in mind and you can say, here's the problem, here's the solution I'm proposing, or you can just say, here's the problem and I want to talk about it. File that somewhere, whether it be a a pull request to the GraphQL spec itself, whether it just be an issue. We also have the GraphQL working group repository where we have an RFCs folder, request for comments, where you can file a document there that details what you care about. This is a brilliant way to start, by the way. We generally say that 
whatever you're doing is is a request for comments. So just filing it as a document in that repository, which has a very, very low barrier to merging. Like you raise a document against it, someone will, you know, will check that it makes sense. Not necessarily that they want it to be in GraphQL, but they're just like, you know, that it's a reasonable request and then it will get merged. Then you would also add yourself to the GraphQL working group agenda for one of the upcoming agendas. So uh, the next one's in January at the moment, for example. You just put your name in there, Benji Gillum, Graphile, Channel of Ford UK, and then you put your topic. Like, I want to, you know, tagged type for doing input unions or something like that. Put an estimate of the amount of time. So many people say five minutes and it's never five minutes. Um, (laughs) So then someone like me will come along and say, let's let's up that to 15. And then that gets merged. And then you just turn up at the next working group. There is, sorry, I should have said, there is actually an extra step, which is you must agree to the um, contributor agreement. But that's all sort of bot led. There's a bot that says, you've not signed this. Here's how you go and do it. You go and do it. You sign, you put your name on the thing, press sign. It then should automatically detect that. You merge it uh, or someone like me would merge it. And then you, yeah, attend, discuss. And then we go from there. There's um, there's a number of stages involved. Um, so the stage zero, I think it is, is like the straw man. So that's what you would generally raise. Like, I think this thing sucks. Like, Everything being nullable by default is great for error handling, but actually it makes my client code really, really messy. I want to introduce the ability to say, throw an error if this field is null. So now I don't need to deal with that null. This is the change that I want. This is the problem I have. What do you think, folks? And people will then look at that and they'll say, yeah, we felt that problem too. Or no, this seems very specific to your use case or whatever. Or have you considered doing it with a directive, you know, or other such things? You'll get feedback and that will then help guide where you go next. And then the aim would be to move it up to stage one at a later agenda and then to move it to stage two at a later agenda and so on until it's stage four, gets merged and then ships out with the next release of GraphQL. I should say, however, at this point, that things don't need to be released like this October 2021 release that we just had doesn't mean that all of a sudden all the features from the last I don't know two three years however long it's been since the previous release it's been a while because of all the the legal stuff so this is actually a really big achievement for the GraphQL Foundation this is the first release it's out everything from here on should be much easier but you don't necessarily need it to be in that most implementations follow the GraphQL spec draft. So once something's got to stage four, it gets merged into the draft. And then lots of the implementations tend to start building it and using it. There's been stuff that people have been using for years that only officially went out in October. Does the foundation manage the languages that are supported? Like, does the foundation make sure that there's a good community of Elixir or Node.js, obviously Node.js, but like if I was a language developer and stuff like what is the process of me getting into the foundation for my graphql server in my language absolutely great question so there's actually two parts to your question which you may not realize and the first thing is no the foundation has no say over this whatsoever the whole point of the technical steering committee is to deal with the technical aspects of graphql the foundation is purely there kind of to support the ecosystem in terms of like funding events being the legal body that represents this. But all of the technical decisions take place by the working group, by the technical steering committee, the working group under the guidance of the technical steering committee, which is independent from the GraphQL Foundation itself. 
like I'm not a member of the Garfield Foundation and I'm on the technical steering committee. So the foundation itself isn't involved. But let's uh, let's imagine you're asking about the you know, the GraphQL working group and things like that. We don't have any like oversight over that kind of thing. We will help you. Like we'd love to help you, but it's up to each like ecosystem to build its own library or libraries. Generally, what a lot of ecosystems do is they effectively follow the GraphQL reference implementation and then just translate the code from that into the code for their relevant language, which is great. But it does mean if there's any transcription errors between the spec and the reference implementation, everyone gets them, uh, which is entertaining. But yeah, like we like to support people like that. And there are quite a few. Uh, so for example, Hot Chocolate and GraphQL Java have representatives that attend the um, the working group uh, most months. But we also try and get the others involved. We ping on the GraphQL working group GitHub repositories to say, here's this new feature we're thinking about adding to GraphQL. Is this going to cause any problems for your language? Because some languages, you can get problems, you know, Null handling, for example, is an interesting one. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of um, discussion that takes place between the various implementations. Let's shift gears a little bit and let's get into the Graphile world. I really want to know kind of like origin story. Uh, I know we talked about it a little bit in the beginning, but let's go into the proper origin story. And I want to maybe like talk about some of the different libraries you have, which I guess will come out of the orange origin story. So I'll give you the floor for this one. Absolutely. Thank you. So Graphile came out of my work on PostgraphQL, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning. One of the things that I really liked about PostgraphQL was that it effectively removed like two middle layers. So when you've been building things for so long, you've picked up all these like software best practices, right? Which are great for really, really, really large teams, like the size of teams at Facebook and things like that. But they're not always the best thing to use in small scale. And a lot of us, and when I say small scale, I, you know, a company with a hundred, uh, sorry, with like 10 developers or a hundred employees is relatively small scale when you compare it to, you know, Amazon or Facebook or whatever. So like scaling is always a, like, where do you fit on, on that spectrum? One of the, you often like have to, I mean, even take Rails, you, you build like a model and your model represents your, your database table. And it tends to be, you have a database table called users, and then you define a model called users. And then you have an endpoint that exposes that model. It would be like your users endpoint. And then you send a request from your graph, from your front end client that says, Hey, I want to get the users. And then you turn that into a model on the client side that you probably call users. And then you use those users. And that's like, what's that? Like database, model, controller, endpoint, client side representation. That's five different layers that all are the same thing. And like one of the things I really liked about PostgreSQL is it just said, nah, we don't need none of that. And to be honest, it's generally quite accurate. I would say maybe 80% of your data model, you've got things like this where you've got a database table and it's the same throughout the whole stack. Sure, you maybe you rename a few fields, maybe you add some extra relationships, maybe you do some other subtle tweaks, but broadly it's the same thing. It represents the same thing. And I really like that because it basically meant that I could go from writing a database definition to having a fully running API in virtually no time at all without having to worry about models and controllers and endpoints and you know all the rest of it. Which was great. Like for someone who has chronically wrote startup after startup after startup, like being able to just get to the end immediately, test the thing and then go back later and worry about all those, you know, best practices or whatever later was fantastic. Now that you put it like that, that actually sounds a little bit ridiculous. 
having a user's table and a user's model and a user's controller. I've never never really thought about that, but that is kind of ridiculous. It is. I think there is there is definitely like the, the five or ten percent space where it does make sense, where you are, you know, aggregating large things and, and you want to sure. deal with this abstraction. But for the majority, like it is pretty linear. Yeah, I got excited about that. I started being involved in PostgreSQL. I became the maintainer, as I mentioned, uh, via being CC'd on an email. And uh, and yeah, I, I've gone from there to maintaining this this post PostgreSQL. One of the biggest things that I wanted with PostgreSQL originally, like before I became the maintainer of PostgreSQL, I tried fixing the performance issues in PostgreSQL directly, um, struggled, and thought actually there's a better way. And for those of us familiar with like building GraphQL APIs, you'll probably be familiar with the data loader pattern. This is one of the ways of solving the, the so-called N plus one problem. But I thought, well, this is all just doing, you know, select from table where ID equals seven or whatever, or where ID is in a list of these IDs. But it's not leveraging like the features of the database. I use Postgres. Postgres can do so much. Why is it not using any of that? Also, Postgres has a query planner. Like it could figure this stuff out and do it in the most efficient manner possible. So I set out to try and figure out how can we make it so that we can build something like PostgreSQL that actually looked at what GraphQL was requesting, translated it to SQL, executed that, and then sent the result back as a GraphQL response. And uh, I did about a two-week hack project where I built the very beginnings of this. You know, it got <laughs> gathered steam. I became the maintainer of PostgraphQL. I um, renamed it to PostgraphQL due to uh, the fact that GraphQL, I think, is a, is a trademark. And so renamed it to PostgraphQL. Yeah, in, incorporated my new experimental idea into what became PostgreSQL version four, which we've now had on the market for three and a half years, I think. We're on 4.12.5 now, I think. So there's been a lot of releases over the last few years, adding more and more and more functionality. In the meantime, whilst working on this and whilst working on client projects to help fund it, obviously, I've taken a whole bunch of the patterns that I have previously been doing myself internally and turned those into open source projects. So I've got, for example, Graphile Worker, which is a job queue for Postgres. It's meant to be used from Node or from Postgres. One of the great things about it is you can tie it into your database triggers. For example, if you use database triggers, you can say, whenever I insert a user emails record into the database to say the user's added a new email address, send them an email. Um, and I just add it to the job queue as part of the trigger. And I know no matter how that email gets added, whether it be through the web dashboard, whether it be through a backend process, whether whatever happens, it will always happen. That's one of the great things about being database centric is everyone has to go through the database. There's never this, you know, don't redirect everyone through the web API when it doesn't make sense, when you can just have the database be the source of truth. And I think that's been really, really valuable. So Graphile Workers, a great pair for that. Go on. This might be a really stupid way to phrase this, but is PostGraphile essentially a way to create a GraphQL server in Postgres? Right, like rather than writing like Node.js or Java or PHP, you're writing SQL statements and creating your database schema, and through that, essentially creating a GraphQL server. I don't know if that makes any sense. Is that a strange way of looking at this? It's an interesting approximation of it for sure. So, like when we talk about like GraphQL, we often talk about resolvers, and we say like you know it makes sense for the business logic to be not in the resolver so much as in a, another business layer. So you can think of like the database as being used to implement that business layer. Normally, you would have a business layer and then 
then the database behind it. But Postgres is so powerful with its like row-level security, its role-based access control, its triggers and functions and all the rest of it, that actually it can be your business layer. So PostgreSQL effectively builds the resolvers that delegate to Postgres. So yeah, you when you're writing a PostgreSQL API, one of the main things that you'll be focused on is actually just building a really good database, building all the relationships in your database, putting all the checks in your database, making sure that your data stays consistent and everything like that. So absolutely. But it's worth keeping in mind that uh, PostgreSQL itself is a Node.js piece of software. And it is extensible in JavaScript as well. So if you need to start talking to, let's say, the Stripe API because you want to take payments, you can absolutely like extend the GraphQL schema and insert things into it. And I know like GraphQL schema stitching, federation, and all these other things are like, you know, very widely talked about. PostgreSQL doesn't really do that. It has one monolithic schema and you can, you know, you modify it, you add things to it but it, it's all part of the same schema process. There's no intermediate schema. It's all just one thing that gets built via a combination of tooling. One of the really cool things about it, like there's so many different ways of using PostgreSQL, but because it's built on a plugin-based architecture, in fact, like everything is plugins. Like the core is like 60 different plugins that do different little small things. Like one of them worries about like relay cursors, you know, cursor pagination. One of them worries about identifiers. One of them worries about tables or columns or adding a where clause or whatever. And what that means is if PostgreSQL doesn't suit your needs, then there's probably a plugin that means it will. Um, So we see like really data heavy industry usage where they say we want to add really complex filters to PostgreSQL and I say I'm not sure that that's a great idea like I don't like adding those kind of heavy filters to a GraphQL API I tend to think of PostgreSQL as a way of making a GraphQL API that's backed by Postgres rather than a way of taking Postgres and turning it into a GraphQL API it's slightly subtle I know but (laughs) that's how I think so I tend to think what should the GraphQL API be rather than how do we expose this Postgres functionality to GraphQL Um, It's a different way of looking at it. Uh, But sometimes what they want is that I want to take Postgres and I want to turn it into GraphQL. So they might add complex filtering logic or they might add an aggregates plugin for one of my clients that adds powerful aggregating features so that you can do aggregation through GraphQL that just uses Postgres aggregation under the hood, Uh, full text search, all sorts of stuff. Like you can mix and match. It's really, it's really nice. Back when PostgreSQL was getting, I guess, out there, there was GraphQL, which then changed to Prisma, which has, you know, the same, not not necessarily the same mission. They've kind of moved away from the GraphQL as part of their ethos, but like it very looks very similar to GraphQL, their SDL and stuff. But besides that, like they're always fighting the ORM battle, right? Like we're not an ORM, we're this. Do people have that same misconception with PostgreSQL? Like, oh, it's just another ORM. It just has a different flavor. I don't necessarily want to use it because I hate ORMs and I got burned by them in the past. Uh, It's a good question. I I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure there are people that feel that way, but PostgreSQL is very commonly used as directly uh, internet-facing, right? So it's not like ORMs are generally consumed on the back end. So you'd have something that abstracts access to your database that you then consume on the back end and abstract again through another layer, as we were discussing previously, and then exposes that. PostgreSQL will just take your Postgres and all the plugins that you've configured and any extensions you want or whatever, and then expose that as a GraphQL API, which your mobile app or your website can send 
request directly there. So you can kind of think of it as moving the ORM to the front end, but that's kind of in the same way that any GraphQL API does that, right? So like if you're using GitHub's API, for example, you are still dealing with GitHub's objects and they are defined as types in the GraphQL schema and you can deal with them in that way. But it's, I don't think it's really, I mean, I don't think GraphQL in general is really an ORM. So broadly, no. Okay. When it comes to permissions and stuff for the PostgreSQL APIs that get generated, so for example, like we're talking about not adding more layers, right, to do things for this. So let's say we have a bunch of users in the users table, and you know, to read some data on that user, you need a permission or some type of permission. I'm talking application level permissions, not database level permission. Do people have to put their own custom middlewares or anything into their PostgreSQL server, like? As a developer, how would I, I have like this essentially read access to everything, write access to everything, post file generated API. How do I secure it? Great. So the, the answer again is Postgres. Postgres has tools for this. In 2015, I think Postgres introduced uh, row-level security. So row-level security is much different from what you might think of as database access control. So you're probably familiar with things like the grant and revoke statements, like grant select on this table to this role. And that's really talking in terms of tables and columns and not in terms of rows. And rows is what we tend to care about at the application layer. But row level security in Postgres gives you this ability. So you can say, for example, allow only access to read posts from forums that I'm a member of. And that would be a row-level security policy. The easiest way to think of what a row-level security policy is, is it's like an invisible where clause that automatically gets added. So generally, when you've got, say, like a Rails API, you might add like a filter that says, when I come through this scope, I want this where clause automatically added. And people have been doing that for years, years and years and years. That's generally... Adding a where clause is what most of your access control is. By using row-level security, you're actually just punting that down into the database. And what is really, really, really cool about doing that is it puts all of your policies in one place. So you can like straight up go, what are my security policies for this table? And there's just one place that says, if you want to select from it, here are the things you need to you know, pass. If you want to insert into it, here are the things that you need to pass. But also those policies are always respected whenever you select or do anything with that table, no matter how. So if you're selecting from the table just data, Fine, yeah. But normally in another application, if you were building like, let's say, an aggregation pipeline, you say, oh, give me the count of users, you would then have to incorporate that into that thing. And especially if you were doing it in, I don't know, a sub-query or there's so many different ways of querying the data in the database. But with row-level security, that where clause is never never going to be forgotten because the database itself is enforcing it, which just makes it incredibly secure. If your data is located, let's say, in not your Postgres database that has to inform the application. So for example, let's say it's Stripe and my my role level security here is, you know, where ID is this, you're allowed to do X, but then you also need to have a valid Stripe plan. You need to have an active subscription with us. Like, are people reflect, like, I don't know if this is just a general question, like, do people reflect their third-party data into the database so they can do things like this? Or is there a different strategy you'd have? Yeah, it's quite common to do that. Like, when you're, I mean, you choose Stripe, I love Stripe, so don't get me wrong in this comment, but it's not 
a millisecond response API, unlike your database, right? When you have your server and your database in the same data center and you send a request to your database, you are getting a response immediately. When you send a request to Stripe, it's not instant. And also Stripe might go down and you might not. So your access control should not be based on sending an API request to Stripe to find out if someone can do something. So I think in almost all situations, whether you're using row-level security or not, you will have a cache of that information somewhere. Maybe you have to fetch it the first time, but you will be storing it somewhere. So yeah, in PostgreSQL, you would generally store that into Postgres, maybe as part of the user object, maybe on a shadow table somewhere that, that stores extra information. Uh, which is how I would tend to do it, like a user secrets or something like that. And then your role of security policies can access that, find out if you had a pol- the uh, you know active subscription and go from there. Yeah, and PostgreSQL just makes it easier to deal with the reflected data that you're you're putting into your database. So it's not like exactly you know a lot of the times people get lazy, right? Like oh, I gotta like I gotta dump, insert all this data from here, but it's already over here. Why do I have to go do this? But it makes, I think it's more about the tooling than the, the practice, right? Like if it was easy to do, then everyone would just be reflecting data and not complaining about stuff. So uh, <laughs> yeah, we certainly help people get started a lot faster. Yeah. There's a V5 of PostgreSQL file coming out, but I don't think anyone knows that. Or was I not supposed to tell anyone? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I am working on uh, PostgreSQL version 5. For the first time in any of the open source that I've done, I'm actually doing it closed at the moment. It will be open source, like, ultimately. But I've kind of... I mentioned before that when I built PostgreSQL uh, version 4, it came out of, like, this two-week hack project, and then it grew from that. And And back then, I didn't have anywhere near as much in the way of like sponsorship or clients and things like that to fund development. So I didn't have the resources to then rewrite that initial like two-week hack project into something that was properly architected. And one of the things that, you know, we've heard a lot about over the last few years is like JavaScript fatigue, right? It's people releasing new major versions of a library every like three to six months because it adds this new feature in that. I've tried to avoid that. I I don't think you want that on something that is so core to your architecture as PostgreSQL, GraphQL Work or anything like that. So broadly, I try and maintain backwards compatibility. But what I wanted to do with version five is I wanted to see, I wanted to treat the last like three and a half years as a research project. Like what are all the problems that people have faced? What are the problems that I have faced whilst, whilst working with version four, like why is it hard to add certain things whereas it's easy to add others? And so with version five, one of the things I've been trying to achieve is like a um, actual, like an engineered, a software engineered solution that has been designed and has actually like had time spent on it. And what this has meant is I've got like pages and pages and pages and pages of notes where I've been drafting out what I think is the right solution and then thinking through it and then going, no, this doesn't work. It contradicts that or whatever. And that was before I even started writing any of the code for it, which I started earlier this year. Then, of course, there's actually building a thing and iterating on that when you discover when you're actually coding it that there's more problems. And what this has involved is me building things and just then throwing away huge swathes of code, like thousands, thousands of lines of code just going, no, that wasn't the right approach. Let's bin that off and start again and build it a better way. Um, And if you kind of do that with open source, like people can weigh in, which is fantastic, but also people start thinking, oh, I should use that. And they might start using it before it's ready or worse, 
people start contributing to it. And then I'm like, I don't want to throw away this code anymore because it's not just my code. Like someone spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours writing that. And I'm not comfortable now just throwing it away. I didn't want to have any of those restrictions at this point. I wanted the freedom to to iterate and to to research and to throw things away and rebuild them. And I've been doing that. And the result has been brilliant. Uh, I'm not really ready to tell you much about it yet. Hopefully, I'll be doing that early next year, early-ish next year. But yeah, it's it's coming along really, really well. And I'm really excited for it. With this version 5, I know you talked a little bit about this earlier, but you have a a graph file LLC in the UK. You, you're taking donations and one and a half days per week are now paid for this open source work, for this work on both maintenance of the existing system, but also I assume work on V5 here. How has that journey progressed from you just being pinged in an email thread, I assume, as, a, as an unpaid volunteer to having actual funding for this and sort of working on this I guess at least one and a half days a week, uh, but I assume also a little bit more than that. Um, yeah, it's been a really interesting progression. It's it's full of frustration because like the level of sponsorship I'm getting is great. Like compared to many open source maintainers, like it's quite a significant amount, and it is allowing me. Like you can see the libraries I'm releasing. You can see the contributions I'm making to you know, the GraphQL spec itself, which again is like volunteer-based, right? So everything I do for the GraphQL spec, for the GraphQL um, working group is all like voluntary. I've released a whole bunch of other open source projects that have got quite big as well. And like doing that and trying to support all these businesses that are using it and all the users that are using it is a big responsibility. And having this sponsorship enables me to do that which is fantastic. But the way I see it at the moment is like the sponsorship is enough to cover like maintenance, like one and a half days a week does maintenance and a little bit of software development. Whereas what I'm doing with version five is effectively like a a grand rebuild of what I must admit is a really big project. Like it, you can't really underestimate just how much stuff PostgreSQL does. There's huge amounts of stuff in there. That's quite ambitious. So yeah, you're right. I've been working a lot more than the one and a half <laughs> sponsored <laughs> days. And I've been basically, um, I front loaded a lot of client work this year so that towards the end of the year, I could spend a lot more time on the open source, which is why I'm, I'm finally spending a lot more time and advancing a lot quicker. But it's really it's really interesting. And I think there's these two... There's many different models for open source in general. One of them is the Facebook way, right? So you have written something that you use internally and then you open source it. And Facebook, uh, or the company formerly known as Facebook, has said that one of the reasons that they do that is because it sort of enforces like a level of quality on the software. Like it forces their their engineers to make sure that the APIs are consistent, to make sure that there's documentation for things. So that's great. Like that's a forcing function for them, which is is brilliant. And React has grown massively, right? But there's other projects that maybe Facebook's open source that they've not been as brilliant at interacting with the open source community for, because at the end of the day, it's there to serve their purposes. And they're kind of open sourcing it as like a, a nice thing to give to the community but it still needs to solve their problems. There's another type of open source, which is where someone sees a problem and thinks, I want to work on that problem. And I think that that is great. Like, that's what I've done with PostgreSQL, right? I've seen this problem. I'm not using it to build a another piece of software. It PostgreSQL is my software. 
I have um, customers and clients that are using it, so I work with them. But those aren't, they're not my projects. And like at any point they could just say, okay, thanks, Benji, you've been really helpful, but like we don't need you anymore. And that would be fine, right? That's entirely their prerogative. So, but one of the great things about a tool like this that's, that's managed independently of one owning corporation is that lots of corporations can all contribute to the greater good, much in the same way that I said with the GraphQL Foundation and the GraphQL spec, it's it's like now owned by the community. And that's really great. But if a project's not the size of GraphQL, and you've got to factor in GraphQL is, is pretty big, like you know, it's growing <laughs> rapidly, but it is also huge. There's implementations in all the different ecosystems. There's people like, you know, GitHub and Netflix and the like that are using it at scale. So there's a lot of money there, really. Whereas the smaller scale projects, I mean, even something like Webpack, right, has struggled with funding. It's a it's a software project that is not the secret source. You know, if Netflix uses um, Webpack for their website, right, that is not secret source for web for Netflix. It's not going to, sharing that with everyone's not going to make any impact on their bottom line. But if they were to give, you know, a certain amount of money to Webpack and every other company that were to use Webpack were to give a certain amount of money to Webpack, suddenly Webpack would be, be able to afford much more development resources. And the amount of benefit that all of those companies would get out of that, whether it be smaller bundle sizes or faster bundling or all these other things that could come out of it, is much more than if they'd have just spent that same amount of money on paying one of their engineers to try and improve that thing. Because it's like the many, many, many hands help to lift this much more efficiently. But I think that we, as a like commercial ecosystem, it's very hard for companies to justify that investment and it seems to me very short-sighted. Like, you could look at Webpack and say, I'm using it, and it is free, and it does what I need. Great, done. But if you actually think about the amount of, like, developer hours that you lose from waiting for Webpack to build or from this... I'm sorry to pick on Webpack. It's just an example. Like, I love Webpack. It's great. If those people that were working on it were able to spend more time, you know, optimizing it or adding extra features that everybody needs, not that one specific company needs, it would be brilliant for everyone. And we really need to help companies to see this and to actually, you know, put their hand in their pocket and give money to open source maintainers like me, like the people behind Webpack and like behind the vast majority of the software that powers today's internet, the vast majority of which is open source, right? I mean, we've just had, this will be out of date by the time this goes out, but we've just had this log4j vulnerability, right? And again, this is one, primarily one person that's maintaining this project, unthanklessly, like in the XKCD. (laughs) And... (laughs) And suddenly there's been this massive problem that has affected the entire industry, like basically anyone who uses Java at all. And no one was like, like I think he had one or two sponsors before this happened. You know, it's just, it's silly. We should be supporting these projects, all of these projects throughout the entire stack. And we should get people used to doing that. What are some different monetization strategies in open source that, you know, that you're thinking about here? Uh, I've, I've heard some different ones like, you know, selling licenses to the source. So it's not necessarily open source, but it can be having like open core models with like closed source licensing, things like that. I know Max over here has uh, something called Bedrock, which is not necessarily open source, right? Like, but it's that same type of like community development where you're giving out software, but you're getting something in return, in this case, money. But what are some other things that may help? Because I don't know 
personally, like I just think companies are always so busy with their own roadmaps. They don't necessarily take the time to respect and realize that they have to throw a bit of their Series A funding back into Webpack or whatever. What's the best way you think, or what would work for you? Absolutely. Well, great question. And I've been uh, fighting, you know, trying to solve this question myself for the last few years. Um, so you mentioned OpenCore. OpenCore is like a great way of potentially funding open source. One of the problems with it is it it detracts from the open source, right? Like if there's something that you offer in your OpenCore functionality, the, the bit that is paid then you probably aren't going to want to merge someone's pull request that adds that same feature to the open source project. Like it's it's not aligning that incentive. So I don't really like it for that reason. We actually have one paid plugin for PostgreSQL at the moment. So like, you know, I'm not staunchly completely adverse to it, but it's a much, it doesn't bring in anywhere near as much as the actual sponsorship, which, you know, sponsorship is the purest way to fund open source. Like you sponsor someone, they can work on the project and that's it. There's not really anything else expected of them than to work on the open source. And it's so pure. The incentives are aligned. If a sponsor comes to you with a problem, you're going to want to help fix that problem, right? But you also have all these other sponsors and you're not going to want to upset them. So you will always try and make the best decisions for the whole ecosystem. And I think that is great. Like it aligns those incentives. Open Core doesn't so much because it basically says, here's this thing we have to keep back because this is how the company makes money. And I, I don't think that's ideal. There's so many other ways of potentially funding open source. So there's like support, for example. We have tried support at Graphart. I can tell you, 2% of our income comes from our support contracts at the moment, 2%. <laughs> Very small amount. I hate to undercut my own business, but like no one uses it because PostgreSQL works, right? It, it almost like it makes, again, misaligned incentives. It makes you want to insert bugs into your code so that you can get people to need support for it. Um, <laughs> that's but that's, that's not, yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. You want to make the best software you can make. So support really doesn't make sense. There's contracting and consultancy, which I obviously do. But of course, those take time, right? We have to go and spend time with those clients, which is time I cannot spend on the open source. Um, and the solution there seems to be charge more, just keep charging more. And at some point, you know, you'll hit that ceiling, but then you can dedicate quite a lot of the income from that into the open source. And, you know, that's what I'm doing at the moment. That's our, our primary revenue stream is through um, consultancy and contracting. There's also like building services, like based on things. So like maybe a hosted service platform, but again, that takes time away from what you're building. So it's not always ideal. There is building a platform that is maybe ancillary, but related. And that can be great as well. But again, it takes time to build it. If it can keep bringing in revenue without requiring more time, fantastic. That's brilliant. You've, you, you know, you've hit the, the golden pot, as it were. But if it becomes super successful, like, why are you doing the open source? Um, maybe you should just focus on this <laughs> other thing. So again, it's like, if what you really want to do at the end of the day is the open source, the best way is sponsorship. And we need to encourage companies to support that because it enables passionate people such as myself to spend more time building this stuff that their companies are going to benefit from. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of different ways of trying it. I just, you know, the only way that is 100% pure that is aligned with the with regard to incentives and isn't going to make someone want to potentially go and follow a different path is just giving money to people who maintain open source and saying, here you go, here's a reward for what you're doing. Keep it up. I think that is an incredibly powerful thing to think about. I've never thought through all of those incentives. 
you're absolutely right that from an open source perspective, the purest form of being able to work on an open source project are sponsorships. Um, like I know Gatsby's doing, right? Gatsby's sponsoring open source projects that it relies on under the hood, right? And it's sponsoring those developers to work on them. And I think that's a model that really more companies should adopt and really help foster the development of the tools they rely on anyway, right? They're, they're, they're using them every single day. So why not help them become even better? Because you're going to benefit, right? In the end, you're going to have a better tool to rely on. I think that's a really powerful note. And I think that's a great place to end it. We've gone way over time because this was such an interesting conversation. Thank you for being here, Benji. I would love to give you space to plug one thing. If you could get every listener to do one thing, what would that one thing be? Well, on, on topic, it would be go to the GitHub sponsors page, find the software that you use and sponsor it. That's perfect. All right, everybody, yeah. go do that right now. Go to the GitHub Sponsors page. Go pay the people that are building the tools that you use every day. Benji, thank you for so much for being our guinea pig, for joining yeah, episode so one much. of season two of GraphQL Radio. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name's Max. We also have Abby here. Go follow Benji, and we'll see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.